Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today we have with us Jonathan Jacobs. As founding partner of Digital Natives Group, a digital marketing agency, Jonathan Jacobs has built a seven-figure social media practice, helping to launch social media platforms for global sports brands, projects for Fortune 500 companies, and of particular relevance to today's discussion, nearly 100 book launches, many of them which became New York Times bestsellers. I'm really excited to have Jonathan here because he actually clarifies a lot of misconceptions around the role of social media in promoting books. And I found our conversation incredibly enlightening. One of the big questions that Jonathan answers for us is the question of why is it that many people, many authors with large social media platforms have tended to underperform when it comes to book sales? And Jonathan is going to share with us that little nugget of insight as well as much more. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and sit back and enjoy. So Jonathan, welcome to the Author's Corner. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Robin. I'm excited to chat today. I am so excited to have you because, you know, if there's one thing when I'm helping authors with their book proposals or as they're preparing for their book launch, right, I inevitably and invariably get questions about social media, right? And what is the role that social media can play, should play? You know, what are the parameters of the potential Mm -hmm. benefits? What are the limits? So as you can imagine, I've got a fire hose of backlogged kind of questions. There's no time like the present. Let's tackle it. Exactly. So we're just going to start chipping away. So initially, I'd just like to ask you, like, do you have sort of an overall philosophy about social media and its role, you know, specifically for authors? Absolutely. So I think, you know, first of all, Robin, thank you again for having me. Thank you, everyone who's going to listen to our conversation. I'm always excited to be able to talk about this subject. Uh, You know, I think the first point that I would make is that when I talk to a lot of authors, it feels like they talk about the book creation publication process as having a series of gates. Okay, I wrote the draft. I'm going to seek an agent. Okay, we have an agent. We're going to go to a publisher. Now, of course, I'm talking about the more traditional model. This also applies to folks who are self-publishing now um, or going through an indie. Okay, now we have a publisher lined up. They're going to figure out the logistics or I have someone who's going to do the logistics. Now I'm going to think about marketing. Right. That's not true at all. This is not the way book publishing should be working in the 21st century. We need to be doing all of these things at once. Now that can sound overwhelming, but the reality is doing marketing alongside working on your book or your book proposals actually one of the most beneficial ways to write. I understand it can be, you know, I go through it myself. It's very difficult to work on a creative project while you're also working on your own marketing efforts, but you're actually creating a positive feedback loop to say, I'm going to put my message out there. I'm going to see who's responding to it, what parts of the message people really take to, I can better craft my book because of that. I'm getting all these new data points on what actually interests people about my message. So I think, you know, 
one part of my overall philosophy is that there is never a wrong time to start. You can only start too late. There's no such thing as starting too early, whether you know, you're a year and a half from your book coming out, 10 years from ever writing a book, there's no downside to building community. So you know, number one is that it, you're never too early in starting this. And, and the worst thing you could think is that you have to do something before you start marketing. You can start marketing any day. You know, you do, all you have to do is sit down and make an account. And I think the other point that's always really important is that you need to build your community around you not around a book title uh, maybe working on because you are going to go on and do many other things. You're going to write a second book. You're going to work on a TV pilot. You're going to become a public speaker. You are going to launch a consultancy. You are going to launch an online course. There can be you know, hundreds of things that you do to create revenue in your life or, or to leave impact. But your book is a moment in time. Now that book, you may revisit it, maybe part of a series. There's a, a whole host of things, of course, that that book could evolve to become. But the most valuable thing is that you have an audience built into you because you can take them from project to project to project. And whether you're a fiction author who's launching two different series, or you're a nonfiction health author who wrote a book about fructose and now wants to write a book about the keto diet, having those people be a part of your community is a lot different than having them be a part of his individual books. In the healthcare example, you know, the people who care about fructose might not really be interested in a book about the ketogenic diet, but if they're interested in Dr. Jonathan, they'll follow me no matter what book. I'm writing. So always frame your marketing as more about you and about the message you have to share and the experience that you can give than about the particular title you may be working on at that point in time. Yeah, that's so important. And I get that question a lot, even with like forming a website, right? People say, mm -hmm. you know, should I, should I, what should the domain be? Should it, should it be my name? Should it be my book title? You know, what do you advise people at all on that? Cause I get that question a lot. So what I always say is you can buy both. That's obviously a very simple solution. Always do that. You also want to own that real estate. So, you know, if you have someone who's got a competing title or competing for the same reader for some reason, they don't kind of buy and pull that traffic away. But you should really build your main website around yourself because that's the SEO piece that you really want to have for the long tail. Again, if you're trying to launch future projects, people will start to know you by your name more than those book titles. You know, we all sit, we know Jody Picoult, we know James Patterson, you know, we know these authors by their names, but I couldn't sit here and recite all their book titles. But if I want to know if something new is coming out, I'm going to say, where's James Patterson's website? So I always say, build it around yourself and being an author. Also, there's a hundred different books could have the same title. We've all seen this before. <laughs> um, so someone's, you can end up acquiring a lot of traffic that actually bounces from your website, which isn't great for SEO purposes. And also you end up competing for that page rank on Google against a hundred books that may have similar domains because you're all trying to own your book title website. One caveat again to that would be if you are a fiction author who's got a series that may have 10 books coming out in it and you've established there are some folks interested, it would definitely be good to have a separate home for that because you've built out a little universe. But I think the default should always be, and even if you're doing that, should always be to have your author website as your first and foremost home online. Well, I'm glad to hear that because it confirms I've been giving good advice. <laughs> and, there is and, nothing better than positive reinforcement. Right, exactly. So I'm like, yeah, pat myself on the back. But I mean, really, because one of the sort of catchphrases that I use a lot with my clients is that you've got to keep the main thing, the main thing. Mm -hmm. And your brand, your business is the main thing. And as soon as you make the book, the main thing, you're in trouble. You have it backwards. And yep. 
you're going to have an impact, a negative impact on that. Yep, absolutely. People, you know, I'm going to fudge the numbers here a little bit, but there was a study that came out about five years ago. And I'm sure you know, through Amazon and Kindle, we have better data on this now. And someone should look that up and fact check me. But the last time I saw numbers on this, you know, the average American man only makes it to page 40 of a book and the average American woman only makes it to about page 60. People are not necessarily buying books. And this to get the information from the book. They're getting it to signal that they were part of a community. It's the same way that we buy clothes. I go shopping at you know a sneakerhead store because I, I'm a sneakerhead. I care about sneakers. I'm in that community. I go shopping at Brooks Brothers because I want to buy these suits so that I can signal that I have a, I should have a seat at this table. We can debate whether this is right or wrong about the way society <laughs> operates. But the point that we buy clothes to signal something about ourselves and to identify is very true. And the same thing applies to books. You know, we have have these eight points that we give authors for what makes for a successful kind of book launch campaign. And one of them, number two, is that you have to build a narrative. And for us, that means give away, you have to give away your information. You got to give people something that they're going to want to follow so that they're going to give you value in return for that, financial value in return for that. Yeah. And then authors always come and say, well, if I'm going to give away everything, why would someone buy the book? Well, first of all, if they're going to follow you for 365 days a year and piece the book together through Facebook, <laughs> I'm in Pinterest posts, power to them. They should not have to pay, you know, 18 right. bucks for a book. I mean, great job. What they're really going to do is even if they don't ever crack the spine, they're going to buy that book because they're going to say, I'm a member of this person's community and I appreciate and value this information. And I want someone who comes to my house, you know, post-COVID vaccine to see this book on my shelf mm. and know that this is information I'm interested in. So it's, again, it's much more about the value they perceive you to have than that particular type. And I love that the relationship that you've established with them through social media. And that really brings me to the next area of questioning, which is, you know, what do you see as the most vital role that social media plays in this whole dance of promoting and launching a book? And I, I mean, that might, might be a really big question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I know you have a big answer, so. <laughs> Definitely a big question. You know, I, if there is a word or a phrase that I think about when I think about social media, it's relationship building. That is what it is. It's getting, it's establishing a connection of, yes, it's one to many of you to hopefully thousands of tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people out there, but it's trying to find a way to create authentic connection between you and this group of people who says, I see you and I see value in what you have to share. You know, we've allowed the process of book publishing to become disintermediated. You know, we don't have to rely on publishers as much to sort through all this noise on both ends. And we now can have authors who are going directly to an audience and saying, I have information that you want. Now, you may then bring a publisher back in who says, I see the value there for sure, but we don't have to rely on that piece of the equation anymore. And you know, a whole other point is, of course, the financial mechanics of the industry. Now there's less resources to go around for marketing purposes. So right. authors really need to take ownership of this social media, of the opportunity that social media presents to them. But the way I think about it, you know, in relationship building has a lot of components. Number one is you can use social media to find your cheerleaders. You know, who are the people that most readily take 
to your information. And now if you can identify 50 of those people, and there's lots of little ways to do that. You have Facebook, which gives away, um, you know, they have this top fan badge that they give some people on your page now. So there's that, but you know, I, I personally have not perceived a ton of value from it for our clients yet, but we know it's there. There's ways potentially you can create uh, incentives around that through using a social media monitoring tool. You can uh, keep some internal notes on who's engaging most often with your content. You can use that to figure out, okay, here's 50 people I want to give early copies of the book to because I want, I know they'll leave reviews or I know that they'll give me good feedback if we do one more draft of this. You can use this as a before, as I said, you know, have people help you collaborate on the material. That's not to say they're going to decide the direction of the plot, but you can give people the opportunity to name a character or give you an avenue for further research. What's a question that they want to know the answer to? We're, We're just trying to form this bond of continuously providing value back to people in a way that allows you to build up that goodwill ahead of making the ask. And it's something, you know, we do in our communities all the time. You know, what is friendship at the end of the day? Well, there's a value in return of I'm friends with you, but also it means I'm going to have to rely on you at some point. And I do that. And it's okay for me to do that because I've done the same for you. I've given you that value back as a friend before. And that's the way it should feel is that it's not a business and commercial ask, but I've done all these things for you. I hope you don't mind that now I'm going to ask you to do this thing for me. And that that really speaks to the long game, right? Because I've seen this mistake made over and over again mm-hmm. with authors, um, even traditionally published ones, where they don't have a lot of social media presence. They don't have a lot of activity on social media. And then the book comes out and they're like, buy my book. Yeah. Yeah, we have had that happen so many times. It is the worst. And I always say, you know, it's one of our least successful project types is when someone comes to us three months before the book and says, I want to make this thing happen. You know, at that point, you truly are better off going with PR because that you can get the bang for the buck impressions with that. And you're going to feel better even if it doesn't convert the same way. But, you know, we really never take on projects if a book is, let's say, three or four months from release. And this is not someone who has done anything for their online marketing. They have no PR. PR lined up. They have no previous like credential or credibility to rely on because what's going to have to happen is that you'll create a profile. You'll get two weeks worth of value content. And then you're immediately going to switch to buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. And it's the same thing with going into a bookstore. There may be a little bit of enjoyable discovery around, oh, here's a cool book cover. Let me look at that and pick it up. Maybe I'll get it. But for the most part, you're going to stumble upon hundreds of authors who are going to have a book sitting there on an end cap or on a table, and you're not going to really pick it up because you have no familiarity with them. You may choose to research it later, but you're not going to actually convert to that purchase because there's no extend, you know, no relationship to lean back on. There's the old adage in marketing that it requires seven touch points with a customer before they become a buyer. So they have to experience your brand seven times. That may mean getting an ad served seven times. It may mean going to a store once, getting an ad served, getting an email. But the idea was you had to have seven of those things happen before someone became a purchaser. So seeing that one ad, seeing that one Facebook post is not going to make them buy the book. And the other downside to this is whatever work you had done to build your community, those you're going to turn those people off who came in because all they're going to be seeing is this messaging about buy my book and who wants to see that for three months straight. Exactly. Yeah. Just unfriend, (laughs) right? Unfollow. I mean, it it is the person who, okay, sorry, I'm getting a call. I got to (laughs) go. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, wait, I'm losing my connection. I'm entering a tunnel or something. (laughs) So let me 
ask you this because, uh, you know, it's interesting too, because I think a lot of authors actually, their more default personality for a lot of mm. them is more introverted. And even if authorship isn't their primary thing, you know, you, saw, you see this in scientists as well, mm. you know, and some of these top experts aren't necessarily the people who are like, hey, I, you know, meet me. So what do you tell people who have that kind of a, you know, how do you support people who are really like, well, I'm a kind of a private person. I don't really like to share. I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, like, no, I mean, I, I definitely get that. I, I am an introvert myself. I always say yeah. if it weren't for working in this industry, I don't know that I'd actually be on much social media besides an Instagram or a Twitter. I think that would really be it. You know, the answer to that is, are there people who are successful without social media? Yes. Are they few and far between? Also, yes. Should you try to copy what they've done? No, because it's a lot, it's genuinely a lot harder to do that than it is to invest the time in creating community. Now, the folks who do it well are folks who do one of two things. Either they have invested in outside PR who's gotten them on every major news network and they've gotten, again, they've gotten so many appearances that those touch points pile up. I will say that is so much harder from 2016 to today. We've all seen what the news cycle has become and <laughs> securing a PR appearance. A PR appearance is not secure until you are actually on the air now. You know, we have had one client and, and I'll never forget the publisher, the PR agent at the publishing house said, I've never had this happen in my 20 plus year career. They were on the way to one, an appearance on one of the big four networks and got pulled as they were in the car on the way to the studio. So now we know you cannot rely on these things till they occur. The other way it works is if you have a lot of friends who have a high audience numbers on podcasts and social media, so you can rely on them to promote for you. That can lead to success too, if you have enough of those chits to call in to convert to that. But both of these rely on a lot of external factors. So you can hit your wagons to those, but why not do it with something that's in your control? Now, the second part of your question along with that, because the first implied part was how do I convince them to do it, uh, is how do I get them to authentically come to it? And that's definitely a lot harder. That's that's part of the reason they come to work with a team like ours that can handle, you know, let's say 75% of what the social media needs to be. But where that hard part comes in, especially you know, as we've seen with the new kinds of channels that are coming up, you have to be willing to put your face there. You have to be willing to take a picture. And what I always say to our clients is, we are going to do a lot, but you, we won't be hands off. You know, we can't be over your shoulder every day, taking a picture of the food on your plate. I can't dress up as you and make a TikTok. You know, there's a real limitation to my abilities or my team's abilities as marketers. And so- And it's we, so important that it's the author's authentic voice, right? Because mm -hmm. people can tell- Oh, you see right through it. Yeah, it's absolutely. not. And it doesn't, and again, it, it will do more damage than benefit. Well, it's, you know, th there's a line we always give and it's, you know, people, this is nothing that we created for sure, but people buy from people. They don't buy from brands. They buy from the personification of what a brand is, if they are. And it's the same thing with authors. I'm buying because I like or I trust this person, not because of this title that exists out in the ether. So how do people relate to people? It's when you make an emotional connection. When it, none of us want to surround ourselves with people who are plastic or, card or cardboard. We want that three-dimensional character who we can connect and relate with, who I have empathy for, who has empathy for me, who I feel like listens to what I'm saying. We need to create those bonds between reader and author. And so, you know, the way that we end up getting them a little bit more engaged is, you know, once we start doing some of 
the social media, they start to see some of that ROI in terms of building a community, then they're usually a little bit more willing to invest uh, the time in making these creative pieces. But it usually starts with, you know, what is the lowest lift way to get them engaged? So maybe it is, you don't have to send me a picture of you with a head of cabbage at the supermarket, but send me a picture of what you have for dinner. Send me a picture of your desk or the view out the window, because that's a little bit more of the again, they're still not on the camera. And I think that ends up being where a lot of the discomfort comes around of feeling like I have to reveal myself or share something from my day. When we can still keep the camera facing out, it lets us break down that wall a little bit. And then eventually, again, over time, they start to get a little bit more comfortable. So I think it's starting with what are the, the easiest ways to reveal something without feeling like you're being vulnerable. You know, you have to be vulnerable to be successful on social media, in, in my opinion, or in marketing generally. But that's kind of a point for a much broader conversation. But yeah, you know, how can we slowly bring down the wall? That is such an interesting point, though, because one of, one of the anxieties that my clients bring to me when we're writing their book is like, well, but, you know, is it okay for me to admit that I don't have it all figured out? And I'm like, oh, my God, Lee, you have to. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. There's some great stories I've read. I used the example before of, of authors who turned to their audience and they said, what kind of pet would this character own? What would that pet's name be? Help me figure out what you want to hear more of from me. People want to feel like they're a stakeholder in what's happening. And when they feel like a stakeholder, they're more likely to buy that later thing. It's it, Think about how a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter works. The idea is to say people want to have skin in the game. They are okay with a business that's just being built for the first time and giving that business money because they believe in the vision and the product and the people who are behind that. You know, it's for Again, another industry we have a whole podcast about whether it should be this way or not, but that's what venture capital is. Right. We're betting on the jockeys, not the horses. It's the people running the company. Right. Not, <laughs> not the product that you're betting. That's crazy. Exactly. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the runway, because I know one of the things you said is like, you know, three months before your book launch is too late to really get the, the result that you want. Do you see a, a range, like a sweet spot? I mean, I, I know that probably the best is the longest, you know? <laughs> but aside from that, you know, if you have somebody who's looking down the road and they're seeing this coming, what would you say is like a sweet spot kind of runway, you know, that's maybe not right up against that three month hard deadline? You know, so that's a, it's a good question. And I think, you know, right now, again, I'd still go as long as possible for sure. I'm going to say that again, every time. <laughs> so what I would say to that question is, you know, we used to always say it's six months, give us six months. And that's usually like five before the book comes out. And then like one month in and around book launch, either the month of or the month following, depending when the book comes out, because you never know when you're going to get that big PR appearance that could really convert and lead to something. I don't know how I feel about that anymore. Personally, I actually pr would probably prefer to have eight months. Um, I think it's just getting, especially now that the volume of content has increased so much this year that it feels like we're needing more time to really lead to that. You know, And, and the reason I say this, when we do six months, the way that that normally works out is the first month is planning. So there goes one month. The second month is kind of in a sandbox. Can we test content out? Can we see what works? Can we see what doesn't? We get two really good months of community building, and then we get two months, excuse me, of hardcore book sales. And I, we, we're starting to feel like we need at least one or two more months on that. But I would say absolute minimum, you want to have a good six months to build a campaign out for yourself. And again, the reason being is we don't really want to start pushing people to buy the book until about eight to 10 weeks before that book has kind of come out. Now you can announce that it's out before that. You can show pictures of it and discuss it little bits here and there, tease it out. But if you're doing something like a pre-order campaign or heavily pushing book sales, if you start to do it too early, as I kind of talked about before, 
before those early adopters of your message who are in your community who are already the people most likely to buy are going to tune you out because you're just hitting them with sales messaging over and over and over again. So you want to have this balance of making sure you reach people on your channel to buy the book, but also not turning them off from being a long-term member of the group because you're hitting them with too much sales messaging. So it's kind of a, a delicate balance there, but you know, we usually say eight to 10 weeks out is when you can start to do it. And even still, it's not like you're posting buy my book every day. It's more of, okay, now we're going to do it a couple times a week instead of once every couple of weeks. Yeah. Right. And not just like flipping the switch from social and engaging to buy, 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 buy. Right. Exactly. You're not asking you for purchase every single day. So one of the things I've noticed it's true about every industry, especially any kind of server industry, is there's always there's always a myth that gets sort of adopted as conventional wisdom mm-hmm. that is actually very damaging to mm-hmm. the people who are following that advice. What would you say is the number one myth in social media that you see that you're just like, every time you see it, you just want to shake somebody and say, no, it's not that, it's this. <laughs> That is an, that's an excellent question. And I'm surprised nobody's ever asked me that before. I would say, I'm going to give you an answer about what came to mind right away. And then if you've heard your clients say something, I'd happily try to deconstruct those in some rapid fire way. You know, I think it's the number one thing would be the number of people that come to me and give me the Gary Vaynerchuk or Tony Robbins or Jay Shetty, whoever may be example and say, I want to do this. Like I need to, he said this, therefore I have to do it. She said this, therefore I have to do it. And I think it's a myth that it all has to be done the way that you saw someone else do it. The way that I've talked about this before is, you know, we have clients who come to us and, you know, the case study we're probably most known for and kind of referenced in my bio a little bit is David, Dr. David Perlmutter and our work on the book Grain Brain. I always feel weird talking about it because that book was six years old, but it's still, you know, that was the best selling book of 2014 on, on the hardcover nonfiction. And then a lot of people, of course, came to us and said, I want you to do for my book what you did for this book. Sure, I'm happy to try to make you a bestseller, but you have to be willing to experiment because only so many people are going to get to the top of the mountain going up the same way as the guy who came before them. Eventually, if that path becomes so uh, trodden with other people, you're going to have a mudslide. The ground's going to give out underneath you and nobody's going to be able to get to the top anymore. You have to be willing to find alternative routes to get up there at a certain point. So I would say it's use some of the lessons about people that these other thought leaders may give you. What are they teaching you about human psychology or about you know effective calls to action? How they choose to execute based on those insights works for them. You don't need to choose to execute the same way. What you need to do is say, here's what I know about people and marketing. Here's what I know about where I want to get as a brand. And here's what I know about my brand and, and what I can communicate about. What is the synergy between these three things? Because it will be different from any, and it should be different from anyone else out there. So I, I guess I would say that the myth is that you have to do something a certain way because somebody, you saw somebody else do it. However, anybody else did it is not going to work for you because you're not like anybody else. That's brilliant. That's so brilliant. And it's so true. And, and it's like, yeah. and, and really, again, it goes back to that authenticity, right? right? Which is from what I, from, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from my observation, I think that that's like the make or break quality on social media. Absolutely. And people, because people can see right through it when you're not being an authentic person or they, you can build community, but it won't be as effective. You, you will get people who are not interested in taking action. They're following you for a different reason. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. 
say more about people who are following you for a different reason. I know. Well, you know, it's when, when you have someone who's not bought into you, they, they may just be following because you're interesting to observe. You know, I think we see that a lot with influencers. Mm. I and mean, it's what happens when you move from the nano to the micro to the mega influencer spaces. These influencers actually become less and less effective. They get a lot of followers because people want to be aware of what's going on, or they think this is an attractive person versus someone who's following them for the content. Now, that's not to say, again, that mega influencers don't have their time and place. They are great for increasing the Q score of a brand when you, if you want to pay for that, you know, for our campaigns, we tend to do more nano and micro because they know more about their communities and we can get better conversion rates. But what I think you see when people, from people who aren't authentic is you just get a lot of audience because you just somehow magnetize and pull people in, but they're not following you because they want to buy from you or trust you as a spokesman or a leader. They're following you in the way we tend to think about social media, which is just, I just want to passively consume content versus I want to engage with with this person's material. You know, I think you might have just answered one of my questions, but I'm <laughs> going to ask it anyway to see. Yeah, yeah, please. But because one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I'm really excited to ask you about, because this is this is a mystery. This has been a mystery to me, although I think, like I said, we might have broken some ground. But I know through some of my insider channels that there have been at, at least several cases where publishers have paid massive advances to huge social media influencers mm-hmm. for books that have then gone on to underperform quite mm-hmm. drastically. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about that in terms of what do you believe is the cause of that? Yeah. So let me break down influencer space a little bit. Let me also put on my hat real quick and say, I really don't like influencer culture. And I think it's a huge part of why we have the problems we do today as society. I'm going to take off that hat and put that on. <laughs> so there, there's kind of like a couple different groups here. So you've got your nano influencers. Now, a lot of people define them differently. So I'm going to give you my kind of number thresholds for the way I think about it. There's nano influencers, which are people who have a thousand followers and below. There are micro influencers, which from it, my, again, my numbers, 25,000 and below. There's at natives, we just say, then there's influencer, which is about 25,000 to 250,000. And then there's mega influencers or macro influencers, which we say are 250 and above. A lot of people have their own numbers around it. That's how we choose to categorize them. So you may hear different numbers from different places. But the again, general idea is super small, average size, and then the big Kim Kardashians of the world. What we tend to see is this sweet spot for our clients is really the nanos and micros. You know, there was a funny tweet I saw yesterday and and this woman goes, uh, Twitter users with 150 to 350 followers are the backbone of Twitter. And it's kind of true. Reason being, when you only have a small audience, you're much more in tune with what has resonance with them and what doesn't. Because these are people who are 100% following you for the information and the content you put out there. They like what you have to say because that's the only way they're learning about you. If you're someone with 150 Twitter followers, there's not a TV series about you. There's no press release that's going out. People have found you because of your content is appearing before them on social media. And they say, oh, I think that person has an interesting perspective. So the, you know, we worked with one, a client once with one of the big four sports leagues, and we did this influencer slash blogger community, had tracking links to figure out who converted and sold the most product. Who sold the most product are three smallest influencers. Everybody did the same amount 
of posting and, and publishing. But this person, our number one was someone who had about 10,000 followers and she did the most dollars in sales, more than our, our influencer who had over 900,000 who was a part of this. So why, why is this? To get to your question, one part, again, we know that on the small side, people are much more in concert and in tune with their numbers. And then again, once you get larger, it's much harder to pin down, okay, why is this person actually, why are these audience members actually following this person? What part of it is inertia? What part of it is, oh, this person's attractive, therefore I want to look at them? What part of it is, oh, I've been following them since the beginning? You know, the inertia of being an audience member, there's really two parts of the inertia of being an audience member and then of being an influencer and just continuously collecting attention. And then there is, well, they did this other paid campaign that was actually resonant with their audience, but so that helped them build, but that doesn't make them someone for whom there's resonance for your potential audience. So yeah, we, we see that a lot. There's examples uh, beyond just books. There's examples in television. There are examples in apparel of influencers, you know, creating uh, new lines and then not taking off. Certainly there are ones who are successful, the James Charleses of the world. Some of the folks in the food space definitely worked. I think there are probably a lot more hits, uh, misses than hits though. Yeah, and that's so interesting because I know from being somebody who helps people prepare book proposals, mm-hmm. right? I mean, agents and publishers are looking for right. those high numbers. And this seems a very upside down point of view. Well, the way I tend to talk about it lately, and I think this is probably a comment more on the state of the publishing industry, but right now the industry is like oil prospectors. They are trying to find ways to find black gold in the ground, and they want to do it by limiting the amount of resources that any particular project gets. So if you have an author who's got 100,000 followers, at least you can say, okay, here's something that makes it, this may make it 1% or a fraction of a percent more likely that this book is successful. Therefore, let's go with it. So, you know, I think as a result, they want to invest as few resources in each of these drill sites as possible. That means they have to do, they can do a little bit less community building for that particular author. So, you know, I think there's a, that fallacy, there are enough counterexamples that make this little fallacy around potential value of that audience seem more effective. I also Again, we should you should build a community. I'm never going to say stop doing it and they're not going to buy from you, but there are plenty because there are plenty of people who have 100,000 followers and 90,000 of them will go buy a book. But I would say you have if you're on the other side of this equation, you want to think look strategically at this person's engagement and try to get some demographic what publishers tend not to ask about is the demographics of that audience. It's not just the number, it's what's behind that number in the analytics that can help you figure out okay, we have this author who's a, you know, she builds herself as a beauty blogger and we're going to do a book about, you know, 10 different makeup up styles. Oh, wait, let's dig into her that 100,000 audience. Well, 90% of it's men. So they're not following her. <laughs> they're not for beauty tips. This person's attractive. You know, same thing with any other example, you know, we want to give to that. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, it's so, because one of the things I noticed is when, when social media first appeared on the scene, publishers were kind of like, I don't want to know. <laughs> they were kind of like, la, 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 la. Like, you know, it was almost like, this is a fact. We don't have to deal with this. Yep. And then when they finally caught on, you know, maybe around 2000 six or eight, somewhere in there, mm-hmm. that, oh, this could be a real thing. Then they almost glommed on right. right, and went this other extreme of like, oh, we need, you know, people with huge, huge following. So it seems like they're still not quite dialed in. 
Well, I think the, 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 the think I'm of, generalizing, but this is just, yeah. I mean, I think they have come a long way. I think Penguin Random House is probably an example of a, of a house that has built a good in-house arm. Hachette is probably another one. The one downside I will still say, as I think they all see their jobs and I understand why, because they know where their revenue comes from is focusing on book sales rather than focusing on community building for the author. And I, I get why I do think again, it's short-sighted because if you are truly making an investment in this author, just because they won't move 5,000 books in the first month, if you choose to focus on community building versus book sales, they may move a factor of 10 more books in the long tail because you spent that time helping them build their community versus help focusing on the short tail and just moving as many books as possible. I get that the mechanics of the industry, same thing as, as building shareholder value, focus on the here and now at the expense of the future. But I do think you know that's the next kind of uh, fallacy to break or the frontier to conquer on the publisher side of things is to really get them more invested in building an author presence, not just in building you know, a book campaign. Yeah. And I think that this is also important, a really important message for self-published authors as well, because mm-hmm. something else that I tell my clients, regardless of publishing route, is that you've got to understand, and I don't care where you started or how big your following is initially, that it really takes a good two to three years for a book to really get its legs in terms of if you want to be thinking about long-term ongoing repeating sales, you don't just promote the book for three months and then stop talking about it. Mm -hmm. That's why we always tell our authors too, you know, we don't like to call ourselves a a book marketing firm or don't come to us and say, I want to be a bestseller because Mm -hmm. we can try to make that happen. But that's a shot in the dark. You know, it, there are so many factors that that depends on. It is what is going on in the news cycle that week, as we saw, again, everything right. has changed in the media yeah. landscape since 2016. It is what other books are coming out that week. It's how is the New York Times going to decide to start calculating things differently at a given point in time? Because say what we will, we all know that's the list that people care about. And then it's, <laughs> does the New York Times even decide to track your book? You know, the, one of the projects I'm, projects I'm most proud of is a book that in the week it came out, you know, it came out, uh, it would have been advice how to miscellaneous in New York Times. It was just, I think, general hardcover nonfiction for Publishers Weekly, but it was number 11 on Publishers Weekly for the week. It did not list on the New York Times at all. I am convinced it's because they chose not to track the book. They saw the material and they said they weren't interested in it. And I think they said they did not want to pick it up for that reason. That was for me, that was probably, I think, 15. That was the moment that I just said, we can't make this promise to people because we can't guarantee it anymore. This isn't like I am trying, you have, you know, computer mice and you try to say, I want to move a thousand products of them. And I can actually try to do that. I have control of the <laughs> commerce solution. We can run ads and make sell it. Not only do I not own the point of sale for you to move your book, but you're, I need to now make sure that a third party is choosing to verify these sales. Because again, say what you will, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, et cetera, people care about New York Times and that's it. I don't care what they tell you in a meeting. That's the thing we're all looking for. So, you know, we're not interested in working with someone if that's what they're really going to hit us on, because we know the real value is going to come from the long tail of that book. It continuing to stay relevant, making sales we building an email list in a community that keeps wanting to buy and engage. Yes, having that book hit the bestsellers may help you get 
those five-figure speaking engagements a little bit faster, but is there more longevity there? And also, I think too, like sometimes the New York Times initially doesn't want to list a book, but then when they see performance over time, Mm -hmm. then they will put it on their radar and they will start tracking it and, you know, reconsider because that, I, I don't know about, I know that the New York Times has that editorial board component, right? you know, which not all, most of them don't. Well, and that's why we always say keep us on for a month or two after the book comes out, because you don't know, you know, Robin, you go, you know, I just read this really interesting book on sociology and you pass it to a friend and that friend reads it and they pass it to a friend who's a producer for CBS this morning. And they say, oh, we should get this person on the show. All those things sometimes happen. And then that can be the spark that lights that fire in those couple weeks after the book comes out that it may actually lead to you getting on the list. And it's good to keep it, you know, have a team like ours around for that. But point being, it doesn't, yes, it's great to have that opportunity with on sale because all those pre-orders get to pile in. But sometimes that spark is just going to come a little bit later because you've been consciously building that effort and that momentum forward. And then once you get that CBS This Morning hit, you've got this website or the social channels that you you can drive all of these impressions back to. And then a bunch of people go, okay, I see the value here. I want to grab this book. You know, and I love what you're saying, because what I'm getting as an overall message is that there's not, social media is not a quick fix mm-hmm. solution. It's not, not at a, all. a quick way to make up for not having built a platform. Well, I think <laughs> they, what I always have trepidation around, or I get this weird feeling is when we just, even when we say the word social media now, because I think a lot of people still have, who are not adopting it as part of what they do, feel that it is juvenile. And what I will say is if you feel that way about it, then don't call it social media. It's marketing. You know, it is community <laughs> building, whatever words you want to put around it. Like this is how people are finding out about your book now. And there's, don't ask, there's no other way around it. You know, it is not the full page out in the New York times. Oh my gosh. That's so yeah. funny. When I first got into publishing, that's how they took the, the premier authors. That's what they got. Yeah. The publisher would be like, we're spending $20,000 to give, you know, which you could never get today yeah. to give you a full page ad in the New York times. That's not, people don't buy a book because a publisher tells them, hey, buy this book that we just put out money to make. Right. <laughs> that's the last thing they're going to do. With all this dis- disintermediation, like that's, look at what Spotify is. And I always say the good example that the publishing industry needs to follow is the music industry. And I think we're moving that way. It's just going to be when people really adapt to it. We now have the ability to search through all of this content and find the music that we are the most interested in. And we do not have really any barrier to entry to find it. Because even if we want to just do the free version of Spotify, sure, we listen to a few commercials while we're listening to that whole CD. But we have no, I don't really care if Universal or Sony or who or Warner or whoever it is, is out there making that CD. I can just go stream that person's music wherever I want. Books are moving in that direction. We're not, I don't think we're hundred percent there yet. We're definitely going to get there, but why not prepare for that reality today? All I got to do is have this audience and they're going to come to whatever that particular project that I'm working on is, you know, but I think I'm losing my train of thought there, but uh, yeah. So I think we need to pay more attention to that as the model for what we're doing. Yeah, that's so valuable. And there, there were so many things in what you were just saying that I'm just, you know, my brain was grabbing onto. <laughs> and, but I also am aware that we have gone over time. <laughs> oh, wow. oh my gosh. That did not feel like it. The power just flew by. So I guess here's a good kind of wrap up question. Like if, you know, one of the things we do is we have, a, we send out a weekly email to our list. That's the bottom line. And mm-hmm. we just pick one topic and we just give them the bottom line. So that is like the main nugget that you need to get. So what would you say is the bottom line on this idea of using social media as an author to help promote your brand and your and yourself? The bottom line is that 
you want to build some friendships. You know, that's that's what I think it really is. In the same way that you join a meetup group or you join a social club and you want to find people who want to invest in a relationship with you, that's what your social media is. It may seem foreign to you because it's a different way of connecting, but the communities and the relationships that you develop on social media, they are friendships. And these are people who you want to give something to and then who you want to ask something of. And what is that relationship when done well? That is what friendship is. That's brilliant. Jonathan, thank you again. Well, thank you for having me, Robin. For your presence and your incredibly wise advice and information. Of course, it was a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.